On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm very excited to welcome Dr. BJ Fogg. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm super happy to be talking to you. I know. I just so adore you. <laughs> I'm such a big fan. <laughs> and uh, you've literally changed my life and, and other patients, and I can't wait to dive into that. But, you know, the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford and the author of Tiny Habits, which was just incredible. So I guess we'll just dive in. And can you just give us a little background of how you even become interested in behavior design? Yeah, well, I'll give you the short version. We can rewind to childhood if you want, but you know, a lot <laughs> of things in our lives start there. Um, I, I just found myself really fascinated with, it started with the power of language to influence people's behavior. And I started a newspaper and I became, I was a terrible writer, but I worked hard and I actually became uh, an editor and a professional writer. I would ghostwrite for people. And that then led to looking at rhetoric you know, classical rhetoric like Aristotle and the Sophists and saying, oh, people have really looked at the power of language and how you influence through that. And then, and that overlapped with my upbringing as a Mormon. In the Mormon tradition, there's a lot of behavior things like no smoking, no drinking, no, at the time, no, you know, no Coca-Cola and do this, do that. And just as things came together for me, I was able just to follow what interested me, uh, both academically and in my career. And, you know, just helping people be happier and healthier. That's, that's just bullseye for me. <laughs> so it's like, well, let's see, my writing maybe can do that in the newspaper, sort of, but that was a long time ago. And so to have a method, Tiny Habits, that helps people create habits quickly and easily. And Dr. Lori, this did not even start out as like, I'm gonna do this thing called Tiny Habits. It was an accident. I was just doing it in my own life in 2010, hacking my own habits. And it was like, this is, wow, this is easy. This is different. Huh. And then I wanted to share it with others to yeah. see, is this just like BJ Fogg? He's just very strange and can create habits this way or can others? And then I started teaching it and it just kept going. You know, I would run these weekly sessions and measure the results week by week. I just kept going and I didn't realize it would end up here, but I couldn't stop doing what felt like a very sophisticated hobby. <laughs> I wasn't being paid for it. It wasn't like officially part of my Stanford lab or research. It was just me helping people and trying to get better. And I'm a behavior scientist, I love measuring stuff. So measuring and optimizing as I went along. Wow. So what was it in your own life that you were optimizing and improving? A few things. Um, probably the thing that a lot of people will relate to. Well, one was my weight and the other was stress. Very common, right? And just things were catching up to me. Uh, and I think this is why I was like, I got to change. I got to change my habits because I was under a lot of stress. I was uh, doing conferences at Stanford that had big implications. Mm. I was, um, I'd just been recovering from doing a startup that didn't work and that was very, very discouraging. 
uh, because I lost a lot of investors' money and that, you know, investors know how the game works. But for me, no, I was yeah. not going to lose your money. Um, and then, so between that and some sleep issues and so on, I really wanted to get on top of stress. And a subset of that was sleep. And then just little by little, the weight came on until one day it's like, oh my gosh, I've, I've, am, I, am I really at this level? And it's like, yeah, you are. And that's okay. You know, I mean, that's, but I, I, I knew I would feel better at a lower weight. And it wasn't about the weight. It was just about overall, you know, health of my body, mm. which a lot of times we measure on the scale and that might be a bad idea, but it was just, I just need to, and here's what was funny. I just felt at the time that if I don't, if I don't solve this now, especially with, you know, the physical strength and weight and so on, it'll be too late because you're almost 50 BJ. So this is a while back. Now it's never too late, but I just had this feeling like, if I don't do this now, I'm not going to get on top of this. So right. you got to figure out how to do this. So, yeah. so those are typical things, stress and fitness. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I just turned 50 last week, so I get it. <laughs> um, and I got a something that you inspired me because I went to your boot camp and I want to share with you later, but um, it's pretty cool how I did my own life. And now it's working with other patients, but I just, I'll show that in a second. But um, so when you talk about your behavior design, of course, there's, you know, the, uh, the fog behavior model that you first shared, I think in 2007 or nine. Yeah. And how did you discover that? I mean, cause it makes complete sense, but you know, there, I just yeah. were curious how, what was the, the sequence of events that led to you to like, aha, what is yeah. this? You know, and I've thought a lot about this. I don't have that good of a narrative memory. I have a really good conceptual memory, mm. but narrative, like remember things in your past is a different type. And it turns out I'm not very good at that. So <laughs> as far as I can remember, and I've gone back and poked around, um, I knew that motivation and ability mattered. I mean, that was just pretty obvious. Mm. Um, and so of course, motivation and ability relate to behavior change. And I was uh, had a, you know, running the research lab at Stanford, but I was also doing consulting uh, for companies like eBay. And I did a special project for LinkedIn and when it was teeny tiny and so on. And I love that because I'm a practical person. You know, just doing academic work that leads to academic papers has never been my objective. I wanna live in both worlds. And so in teaching industry people like, oh, you want people to do X, Y, Z, let's understand what are the components of behavior. Certainly motivation ability came to the surface quickly. And then there was just, <laughs> I was in Europe and I told them I was gonna give a talk on hot triggers. So tr tr I now call it prompts, but I knew you had to be reminded. There had to be a cue. There had to be something that said, do this now. So that was the third piece of the puzzle, but I hadn't put it all together yet, Laurie. And mm -hmm. I'm in, uh, I think I was in Belgium and flying over and it's like, okay, I haven't fully done my talk yet. I know it. I, the title's hot triggers. It's printed in the program. I better figure this out. <laughs> So, I know. Don't do this, people, because if you have your talk ready to go, then you get on the plane and you chill. If your talk's not ready, it's not a good flight. Okay. But I, I was doing that and thought about it a lot and then, you know, arrived there and then the pieces came together. It's like, oh, that's the relationship between motivation and ability 
and now what I call prompt, and there is this line, that curved line that I call the action line, which is so important. So it's not just those three things, it's understanding the relationship. Right. So it was kind of a forcing function of having to give a talk in Europe that made me go, okay, now we got to get all the pieces here together, BJ. And I, I, as, as near as I can remember, that's how I finally got those pieces together. Well, I'm going to share it with the people who are watching because I've actually taken, so this book is like well highlighted and dog eared. It's crazy. Um, anyway, but you know, you have a section in here, how to teach someone that. And I literally, you can see where I marked where I'm teaching my, my kids. Oh, my, my 20. Yeah. So, you know, this, this is actually, I've drawn it out for patients and I explain to them how all these behaviors, and it is like the coolest thing to see these aha moments occur with individuals mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so when you explain it to me to other people what is some of the aha moments that you like to hear or you've heard that are just like wow or is there anything that you've changed their lives I mean this is so cool anyway uh, you know it is the best way to think about it uh you know the fog behavior model especially the the drawn version that you just showed is mm -hmm. like an answer to a riddle and the riddle is, how does behavior work? And, you know, the, the rhetoricians talked about it and there's been lots of, you know, social scientists and marketers and on and on and on. And it's never been solved. But then once you see, oh, behavior is motivation, ability, prompt, then it's obvious, just like hearing the answer to a riddle. But it wasn't right. obvious before that. So the reactions... Mostly when I teach it, people are like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. I now see why. But then there's another reaction that's like, oh, that's obvious. It's like, it's obvious. <laughs> it wasn't obvious for, uh, let's say, 2,000 years. Uh, and that sounds a little, um, I mean, that, that may come across wrong me saying that. But yeah. when people say it's obvious, it's like, and, and I don't say anything. And it's, and it's like, okay, fine. But what's really helpful is for the people to go, oh, I now see why. I tried to change in this way and it didn't work. And I get it, right? Mm -hmm. My motivation sagged. I dropped below the action line. And then I, and bam, I now see the, the critical importance of making it easy to do. So I'm not so dependent on motivation. So people do make connections. Um, once they see it, and in fact, similar to uh, building a little bit on what you said, I got an email this morning from a person currently in my boot camp. So boot camp is training I do with professionals, uh, everybody. And uh, Dr. Lori came and joined me when she was awesome, by the way, she was awesome. Um, but a, a guy emailed this morning, said, oh, I taught this to my kid and da, 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 and I forgot. Let's say his kid was 10 or something. Uh -huh. And the kid got it. And he says like, why isn't there a boot camp for kids? <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's not conceptually, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. Once you strip away all the confusion mm -hmm. and all the baloney around behavior change and you only focus on it's these three components and different ways of uh, designing for them. It's pretty straightforward. So I thought that was funny. I don't think we're doing a boot camp for kids, but maybe, who knows? We should do a boot camp <laughs> for kids. And I think it's a fabulous idea. Well, speaking of kids, so my 24-year-old Jonathan, he started with this. So this all, he's, he started doing this after I spoke to him about tiny habits. He's up to 420 pull-ups a day. Okay. Um, do you yeah. know how hard that is? 
Dude, that's, I know how- That's I, massive. It is mad. He wants to break the 24 hour pull up record uh, for 8,000, um, close to 8,000. And he is cracking me up. So he's got the whole thing designed, how he's figured yeah, it out when good. he does it. Um, he's like, this is, it's amazing to me. I'm mean, he's like, yeah, this is- Okay, for context, everybody who's listening, <laughs> most people can't do one pull up. I can do some. And I, I got a injured my shoulder about a year ago, so I've paused on it. So I could probably do eight right now if I pushed it. The most I've ever done in a day is I did a hundred. And I that was I want to do a hundred push-ups, a hundred pull-ups, and a hundred um, burpees in one mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And the push-ups weren't so bad. I do tons of push-ups and the burpees are annoying, but you get through them. The pull-ups, you get to like, and I was doing them in batches of 10 and finally five. It's like, whoa. 400 and 20 yeah so next week he'll be up to 440 he's adding 20 (laughs) every eight days (laughs) that's Um, that's really impressive congratulate him for yeah no for sure it's just um and and just to share my own so when we were in the middle of the boot camp Mm -hmm. and i'm sitting here thinking i should because i'm a big fan of doing it myself before I share it with patients to make Mm -hmm. sure I understand it. Like I've worn continuous glucose monitors. I'm not even diabetic, but it was been very helpful. You know, I'm doing all these different things. And uh, so I was like, you know, I've been a runner for a long time, but never really consistent. I've done half marathons, one marathon, but you know, life, like you said, stress, whatever, starting a new company, um, just the small things. And uh, I was like, Mm -hmm. man, I'm going to do this. And so I'm going to be, but then I was going to be, I'm going to be 50 in three months. I want to run five miles a day by the yeah. time I'm 50. And yeah. I've never run consistently like that. So I started with one mile and I'm getting to the tiny habit, kind of the anatomy, which we could talk about. I anchored it to taking my dog out for a walk. I'm already dressed. Oh, good. Take, put her Makes back, sense. Makes go sense. run. I started with a mile a day, which is easy. And then I well, added- and, But a, for some people would have to start even smaller, smaller yes, of course, yes, but keep absolutely. going. Yes. yes. Absolutely, sure, smaller. But I dissected it to 12 weeks. What do I need to add? A third of a mile a day every week. And by the time I got to 50, I was running five miles a day and it's literally been easy, no injuries. I'm super cautious about that. Um, But now I'm training for my first 50K, which is about 31 miles. Um, So it's really exciting. And (laughs) oh, to celebrate, you have the other anatomy part, you know, so part of when you read Tiny Habits, everyone, you know, he talks about the anatomy, the anchor, the behavior and celebration. And I really think that's so key because my patients get frustrated when they fail, but the celebration key that you speak about is really important. So you remember those, did you ever get those foil stickers like stars when you're a kid? Oh my gosh. I lived for those. Oh, mm. So look at these. I got, I got butterflies. Oh, those are and way happy. cuter, way cuter <laughs> than what I had. On my calendar, I gave myself a sticker every time Good that I did. You. Good and so anyway, you. but that is a, uh, that is just covered. And so when I share that with the patients, they're just totally blown away. And that it's, it's a great illustration of how you can move this into your life in tiny, in your tiny habits. Yeah. And um, I just think that is, it's just phenomenal. So when you get to, and you kind of discuss when you describe a tiny habit, what is exactly well, a tiny habit? Yeah, I'll break it down, but let me start with examples, real examples from my life. And just listen to the examples, all y'all. And I was born in Texas, though. I moved out when I was like eight All months. my babies are born in Texas. I trained in Texas, so <laughs> yeah. I got you. Dallas, yeah. <laughs> um, so after my feet touch the floor first thing in the morning, I will say it's going to be a great day. After I pee, I do two push-ups. 
After I walk into the kitchen, I fill a glass with water. <laughs> After I fill the glass with water, I squeeze lemon or lime into it. And then of course I drink it at some point. Um, after my partner says he's going out walking, I say goodbye, I give him a hug and I say, be safe uh, and so on. And uh, one more, I get ready to go surf in the morning and I added, Lori, this is a pretty new habit. After I get my surfing stuff together, which will have water in it, it will have goggles because I take them out in case there's turtles or now the whales are coming back. Awesome. And it has you know a little bit of coffee and stuff. So after I get my bag prepped, I stand on this vibration plate <laughs> and I vibrate for a while to wake up my body. Mm -hmm. And so all those are examples of what we call tiny habit recipes. After I brush, I will floss one tooth. After I pee, I will do two push-ups. So what comes at the end is the new habit. Mm -hmm. Flossing, push-ups, standing on the vibration plate. And what you do in the tiny, so, so that's the behavior. So a habit is an automatic behavior. So habit is a subset of behavior. So that's the B in ABC. Mm -hmm. And then you find where does it fit naturally and you anchor it. And so and that means you attach the new habit to something you already do. So say you already brush, that can be your anchor for flossing. So then the recipe is after I brush, I will floss. And in this case, you make it super tiny, one tooth. So that so you have anchor behavior and you design that and you you toy around with that because you won't always get it right the first time. And that's part of the method. It's just like you are designing this, you're designing. You're not using willpower to force it. You're designing it so it's very natural into your life. Where does this fit naturally? And then it, when you do floss one tooth or when you do the push-ups, then you you cause yourself to feel successful and we call that celebration. And there's different ways to do that. You can do movements, you can think thoughts, you can smile, you can think about your higher purpose, anything that helps you feel uh, that emotion of success because that's what wires, that's what turns the behavior into a habit. That's what makes the behavior become automatic. So it's ABC. Usually you start with the behavior. What new habit do I want? You make it really tiny. Then you find what does it come after? What do I anchor it to? And then as you practice it, revise as needed, but as you practice it, celebrate, allow yourself to feel good. And then the habit will wire in very quickly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you're speaking of a boot camp for kids. I'm just, cause I have a, I work a lot with parents and getting their kids to eat healthy and do some other things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, eating more vegetables. And it's kind of like you're saying, we start with them learning small things in the kitchen. It's the, the joy of the behavior of, of prepping the food or growing their, their yeah. food out of yeah. a, like a little garden or something. And then the cel you know, the celebration and the joy of that is actually cooking it with their parents and, and seeing, yeah. you know, this is tasty, healthy food. And that's a great way to introduce these type of things to to younger children or to teenagers or to young adults, whatever. Um, that is, it's, it's really cool to see that, but you I'm also- a huge fan, but, but let me follow yeah. up on that. Okay. So boot camp is the term I use for when I'm training professionals. Yeah. Like okay. it's professionals coming to do it. The good, and I'm not gonna do that with kids because they're not professionals creating change programs. But right. what we just launched last week and we've been, is 
tiny habits for kids. So mm. now there's a community and we're letting people in slowly. So I don't know when people will hear this, but and it's not for kids. It's actually for parents and teachers and doctors and anybody that works with kids. And there's specialty mm. groups there for kids with special needs uh, for different domains. We don't yet have a discussion or a group on cooking, but we could. And so that is my hope there is that will become the number one community and it's online. It's not Facebook because I'm against Facebook, by the way, it's, it's mm -hmm. on a different platform that's private. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be the number one place uh, in the whole world mm -hmm. to help use the tiny habits method to help kids be happier and healthier and more productive and less stressed and all of that. So we did launch that and hired a community manager and it's going really well so far. So, awesome. so yes to what you were saying, but just, we're not calling it boot camp. But I can't, tiny yeah. habits for kids. Yes. Which is is awesome. So I'm just to follow up on that. So, you know, when you have a baby, <laughs> You're just like the first time you're like, oh, well, this is a little human. Great. Now what do I do? Right. And so um, is there anything that you have to help pa parents understand even just parenting or the dynamics yeah. of that interaction with kids and how to respond to children to help encourage them in different things? Is there anything like yes. that? Yes, yes, yes. Let me hit on two things and I'll, I'll be fast on this and we can drill down deeper if you want. Number one, and this applies to all people and not just kids. If there's the behavior you want somebody to do and they're not doing that behavior, remember all behavior comes down to, are they motivated? Do they have the ability? And is there a prompt? It will, and if they're not doing the behavior, let's say picking up socks off their bedroom floor, either they're not motivated or they don't have the ability or there's no prompt or reminder. Now, most of us make the, would make the mistake of, oh, the socks are on floor, I'm just going to get mad. I'm going to try to motivate my child to pick up the socks. That's the wrong starting point. Mm. You start with prompt. Is there something that's reminding, and I'll say it's a son, is there something reminding my son to pick up the socks? And if there's not, make sure there is a reminder. Now, in this case, it probably is, okay? And we call that nagging. Okay, so they're being reminded. <laughs> Next, you don't go to motivation you go to ability. Is it easy enough to do? Maybe you have to put a little, little hamper, not in the kitchen or in the laundry room or in the bathroom, but right there in their bedroom. Mm -hmm. So then the next thing you look at is how do I make it easier to do? So you want to make sure there is a prompt abilities there that it's really easy to do. And most of the time, maybe not with kids picking up socks, but with other types of behaviors, most of the time you've solved the problem either by making sure there was a prompt or making it easy. Now, if your kid's still not picking up the socks, then you know it's a motivation problem. So then you think, how do I align what, what my son wants with me wanting to pick up socks? And here's how one of my friends solved it in South Africa. And she had two boys and they would leave their clothes all over the bedroom. And, and she was so, she called me actually to tell me this. She was so excited. <laughs> She's like, okay, what do they already want to do? What are they motivated to do? They're not motivated to pick up their clothes. And she realized they're motivated to throw things. Uh -huh. And so she bought a hamper, put it in their bedroom and put like a basketball backboard over it. And yeah. said, hey, what I want you to do is whenever there's anything on the floor, see if you can throw it in to the hamper. So notice she tapped into motivation they already had, which was to mm -hmm. you know, throw things in the hamper. 
And that was, she was, and that's all the problem for her right there. So right. there is a troubleshooting order and in summary, and too often we go to like being upset or threats or bribery, start mm -hmm. with prompt ability. And then if you have to figure out how to motivate, then you know you're there, but you don't go there first. Right. And I, I think that's fabulous because the first thing that went to my mind is basketball hoop yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a parent, but uh, you know, it's exactly right. So parents, for example, um, will come in as like, my kid is constantly crying when we go to the store. I was like, well, what, what do you do? Well, I give them candy or something like, well, you're just reinforcing the behavior yeah. you're not wanting. <laughs> so let's yeah. think about this for a second. And it's really cool is that as a physician, I started this podcast because I was so curious about why could some people go from, you know, 400 pounds to a normal weight by eating a healthy diet and suddenly they just changed. I'm like, well, how did mm -hmm. you do that? I could not figure it out. What was the answer? And so, so does any of your behavior design go into what is the trigger to help people yeah. suddenly want to be something that might be life-changing? Well, um, I know you know someone, you know this, you're just having me say it. So <laughs> you're asking a question to which you know the answer, but I, I will give one version of my answer. Okay. The only habits that wire and, and stick reliably are things that people already want to do. So if you don't want to go walk on the treadmill, guess what? You're probably not gonna make that a habit very easily. If you don't wanna eat kale, guess what? That's not gonna become a habit. So if we look within the world of nutrition, mm -hmm. find those foods that are good for you that you like eating. Don't force yourself to eat foods you don't. And that might be, and it will probably be some trial and error. Let me try this, let me try that. Let me ask friends and so on. And so figure out which foods are on your game plan that you also like eating. And when you do that, then it's a lot easier to resist the foods that are not on your game plan. Mm -hmm. One that was pivotal for me back in the day as I was figuring it out for myself was cauliflower. And not just cauliflower, but cut it up and dip it in mustard. And I know that sounds crazy, but it was so satiating. I know you give me this face, but it was so <laughs> satisfying because it was crunchy. And then I loved the spice of mustard. And then wow. I didn't crave like uh, French fries or chips or crackers. It was like, and so that was my go-to afternoon snack and hundred percent on my game plan. Awesome. And you just figure out things like that. And they're not entirely obvious. Um, that's why, you know, you think of this as a design journey, a design mm -hmm. process, and it can be a really fun one. Um, and then there might be things you start, like I started the habit of eating an orange every day. And I decided after a while, it's like, no, that's not really working for me. And that's okay, you let it go. It's like, no, I discovered I don't wanna eat an orange every day. I don't think it's on my game plan. It doesn't make me feel good. For me, it was just too much, mm -hmm. much sugar, I guess, or fructose or whatever. So focus on things that you already want to do and make those habits and be really exploratory and have fun and be really flexible. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody's perfect in this journey and too much of the chatter out there says set a goal and track it and be absolutely perfect. No, that's not right. right. Know where you're headed and figure out what habits will get you there but figure it out and play around. You design and redesign your habits.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, no pain, no gain type thing, yeah. because I, I think all you're doing is creating more obstacles for you. You know, it's like, it's, I, I don't know, I, I, I think you're right 100%. And, and I think especially because I, I tend to work a lot with um, women in their 30s to 60s and my kind of who I attract. And uh, it's they already have enough shame and guilt and frustration and then to feel failure over and over again. And I think this is a beautiful way of you know, being flexible and the journey and, you know, it's fun too, is being part of that with them is helping them celebrate. They love that to have someone. So um, it's a lot of fun. And this was the second point about kids. So this fits in now. In one of the big controversial, I thought it was going to be controversial, but it hasn't been. But one of the big shifts that I want people to take away in my book is habits are not, you don't do repetition to create habits. Habits Mm -hmm. form when you feel successful. It's an emotion. And I name that emotion shine. That's the feeling of success. And so with your children to help them wire in habits, if you help them feel successful as they do, tidying the kitchen counter or picking up their socks or sitting down to do their homework, that's when to you're essentially reinforcing them by giving them this positive emotion. And there's different ways of doing it. I'll give an example from my childhood, even before. I mean, I think everybody can connect real world examples with the concept. We just didn't have a name for it. In Tiny Habits, we call the method celebration, the emotion you're shooting for, we call shine. It's a feeling of success. Back when I was a kid, uh, let's say it was uh, ninth grade. Um, I, one of my friends was a really, really good trumpet player. But over the summer, he decided, I don't want to play trumpet when I get to high school. I want to be in the jazz band and not trumpet. I want to play saxophone. And, and it was competitive to get in the jazz band because the high school had a very good jazz band. But he started in and he told me this story years later. Um, he said his mom would be in the other room reading and when he, and he practiced a lot up to six hours a day, which is a lot. But he said when his, whenever he finished a song, his mom would be in the other room going (laughs) all summer (laughs) long. And so she was helping him feel successful, which kept him going and which wired in you know, the habit of practicing and increased his motivation. By the time he hit high school, he not only made the jazz band, he was the number one sax player, which wow. freaked out the older students. Like, where did this kid come from? Well, I, I, I see that story as the power of shine, mm. as the power of helping other people feel successful to reinforce or wire in those good behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the opposite is shade. Shade is, you know, you, you, you make somebody feel bad. And if you just put those on the table and say, well, do I want to help my child feel shine or feel shade? Of course it's shine, but too often we go to the shade side. So that's one of the, in fact, at Tiny Habits for Kids on the platform as we were um, interacting today, that was one of the things I said. We, we, have a, we have a part of it where it's like, you know, like big dreams and moonshots. Where do you want this to go? Mm. And mine was, I want to have kids learn the tiny habits method, but especially shine in fourth or fifth grade. Mm. I'm just putting it out there, but wouldn't it be great? I mean, it would have been transformative in my life if I learned 
how to feel successful, learn to embrace that emotion and applied it through my life. I, I, I would have had, uh, I would have done better, I guess. But <laughs> now it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting to be on the other side. And even the simplest interactions like, um, oh, I was surfing this morning with a guy that's not very good. And, but he's progressed. Um, well, let me shift gears. Both of these are true, but this is more interesting. There's these two kids that started surfing about two weeks ago and they were not good. They're cute little kids though. And um, they're about nine and 12, brother, sister. And as they progressed, I pointed out to them, says, oh my gosh, you've gotten so much better. And da, 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 da. So for me, somebody they just sort of knows, somebody who surfs early in the morning Mm -hmm. say, wow, you're so much better at this now and notice this and notice this. And then I told their dad yesterday, I said, man, you have a couple of surf, you're going to have a couple of surf bums on your hand. <laughs> They're getting really good. And it's actually a good thing. You know, they'll be active, they'll be connected in nature. So just yes. think, how can you give shine even to somebody you don't really know to help them wire in good habits? Absolutely. And that you know, coming to a parenting example, Jonathan, the one that's striving for the pull-ups, um, mm -hmm. when he was little, um, so I had my older daughter, who's about to graduate medical school, super bright, smart, does her thing, no problems. The, the youngest, same like her. The middle one, though, um, he couldn't, it was really weird. We started, he, he, he could talk normally and everything, but when we go to start kindergarten, he couldn't learn his letters. I was like, mm -hmm. what is going on? This, you know, he's a little bit older. We held him back a year to start. And went, we went through a variety of things trying to figure it out and kind of find out. I read a book um, called The Gift of Dyslexia. A friend of mine mm -hmm. was in medical school at the time said, you know, it sounds like dyslexia. And sure enough, it was like reading all about Jonathan. And what was really interesting about that book was learning how to do these different things to help him understand the structure of letters and sounds. And he learned like 16 letters and over the course, course of two weeks at Christmas break. And it was like a breakthrough moment. Wow. And I took it from then. So that was in the, let's see, Jonathan was born in 96. So that was early 2000s. And so I started looking for avenues for him to be successful, not even understand. Good. I just wanted him to understand yeah. that he could do that. I was like, you know, Albert Einstein was dyslexic, all these amazing people and, they, and were amazing individuals and you see things differently, we're dyslexic. And so Jonathan at the in first grade had a, um, he couldn't hardly read at all, but by fourth grade, he had a first grade reading level. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then finally by eighth grade, he had caught up to his peers and then went on to graduate <clears throat> third in his class and won a full wow. scholarship to college. And Jonathan, what was really interesting was doing that exactly what you said. So if he found something that he liked, I did everything in my power to make, we got more of it. Like he found a book that he liked. I bought the whole series. Yeah, so it was like, yeah. you know, we doing that. I wrote a story. I wrote a book with him actually. Well, <gasps> he started and I finished it. Um, and I still have it. It's a, it's a, a middle-aged kid book, but it was about that. I actually finished it when I was deployed to the Middle East in the air force. Cause it was, it's such a, an escape, but that was kind of the thing. And he's an excellent writer now, but wow. that's exactly right. You, you can show the interest and shine and invest yeah. in your kids it's really amazing. And I learned so much in that process. And the feedback, and I have a diagram in the Tiny Habits book where I talk about this, the feedback that is super, super powerful, whether you're super powerful shine or devastating shade, think of two circles overlapping. One is here's a topic that your child cares about. And the other circle is 
they are uncertain about their performance. So the overlap of that, they care about, but they're uncertain. Any feedback you give is supercharged. So if you give positive feedback, like I did to the surfing siblings, the surf siblings, you know, <laughs> they're learning to surf and they're uncertain. And here I am, you know, a lot more experienced and, and I'm saying, wow, you're really progressing. <sighs> Tons of shine. Right. But if I had come and said, look, you're really not, uh, you know, you're not adjusting on the wave, right? Or you're getting in people's way. That would have really, really hurt probably. Uh. Um, so just recognize the opportunity we have to give kids, spouses, colleagues, even ourselves, that feeling of shine to help us move forward, but also the dangers. I mean, you could be very well-intentioned, mm -hmm. but if it's something they care about and they're uncertain about their performance, if you give them uh, you know, negative feedback, mm -hmm. it's going to be super powerful and it may not have the effect that you intended to have. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about um, as a female going through medical school 20 some odd years ago, you know, I had more than a few individuals because I was a mom. I had the three little ones yeah. when I started medical school and I was like, you shouldn't be in medical school. You're one, a female and two, you're a mom. What are you doing? And I just, it just really motivated me more. But so, <laughs> you know, it depends honestly how you filter it through yeah. yourself. And I think, like you said, that shine to yourself is so important. I have so many women, I speak to them about speaking to themselves kindly and looking in the mirror, like you almost like, it's going to be a great day or walk yeah. in and say, this is, yeah. you're a good person. They really struggle. It's, it's like a, a kind of well, a bad habit in the sense, but how do you break yeah. the bad well, habit? The, that the, may be the next. Yeah. The, the good news is you can get better and better. Mm. Of course, it helping other people feel shine, but helping yourself feel shine. Mm -hmm. um, when you map it out in an academic way, there's the world of, um, it's called emotion regulation. And one of my colleagues at Stanford, James Gross, I think is the world's expert on this. And I was his first graduate student when he came to Stanford back in the day. Um, and so you've got uh, the world of upregulating positive emotions or downregulating negative emotions. And there's lots of things people do to downregulate. How do I feel less guilty? How do I feel less stressed? How do I feel less um, worried? But there's not that many ways to upregulate positive emotions. And in Tiny Habits, celebration is a way. How do you, you know, you're feeling uh, maybe a little satisfied. How do you turn up the volume where you're feeling delight rather than just satisfaction? Mm. Um, and so that's one of the current research projects in my lab is we're looking at the wide range of ways of upregulating positive emotion. Mm. Um, and in Tiny Habits, I talk about this, not so much in the academic way but you can discover how to give yourself a positive emotion on demand. Sometimes it's a physical movement, like a fist pump, like Tiger Woods does. Uh, it could be hands raised over the head. It could be smiles. It could be a song that you sing to yourself. Um, like I have the tiger, anything that lifts your mood. Um, I list over a hundred ways in the book, Tiny Habits, and there's probably thousands of ways. And one of mine, uh, like if I really, really need to wire in a habit quickly, because when you, when you feel that emotion as you're doing a new behavior, that behavior will become more automatic. You are, rather than giving yourself a treat or a little piece of candy, you're giving yourself the, that emotion uh, that many people call it a reward. I don't use that term, but you're, you're 
reinforcing yourself the emotion. One of mine is like, I save this when I need a really powerful one. I think of my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Bondietti, and I think of her saying to me, you did a good job. And there's something about imagining Mrs. Bondietti, a really tough teacher, really smart teacher. I really admired her, but a little afraid of her too. <laughs> and maybe that's why even now when I think, you know, so let's say I'm trying to wire in the habit of standing on the vibration plate, okay? Mm -hmm. um, as I step on the plate, if I, I can think of Mrs. Bondietti saying, you're doing a good job, right? And oh. that helps wire in the habit. And yep. so there's different ways you can upregulate your emotions in tiny habits. We call that technique celebration. And it's just a, it's a skill you can learn to get better at. And it seems to counteract the self-trash talk. Hmm. Um, and so, and the more you do, the more you become aware. And, and this was, this hit me pretty early in teaching. I probably only taught 2000 people tiny habits. Now I've taught 4,000. 40,000, 50,000 personally through wow. email and stuff. And a woman wrote me back and she said, BJ, I now see I've endured a lifetime of self trash talk. And I didn't feel that way about my life, but I, 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 I dialed that in and I started seeing that in so many other people I was working with. They just have this habit or this ongoing internal chatter that's all negative criticism, criticism, criticism. And it seems that, and I say it seems because I haven't done a true experiment to prove this, but it seems that as you learn the skills of celebration, in other words, upregulating positive emotions, that you will use that rather than another. Now, I'll give a quick example. Uh, this happened a couple of years ago, but I think it's a pretty clear example. Uh, I was, after I flossed, I went to throw my floss into the bathroom little waste bin and I missed, it fell on the floor. So rather than going, gal, BJ, you're so clumsy. I just picked it up and put it back in. And I said, good for me. I picked it up, you know? And so rather than beat myself up, I just picked it up and I said, good for me. So that ended up being a positive thing rather than me saying, oh, you're so clumsy. You can't even put floss in a little trash bin. Right, exactly. I think that's really, really important. So if it, kind of speaks to, I really would love more information about the upregulation and the emotional regulation researcher, if he has any papers or yes, anything, yes. <laughs> that would be I've great. Got some great. Well, we're studying in my lab right now. So yes, awesome. I can share those with Please, you. Please, that was great stuff. The amazing, I'm, I literally, it's behavior does research over here, <laughs> all my books. Um, I'm curious, so can we, we talked a lot about, you know, bringing in these healthy behaviors, how to start this tiny habit. Well, what about these bad habits you know let's say someone yeah. is overeating and you know the processed foods and all that because obviously that's something that i'm constantly working on um i figured out a way that seems to work really well but what is some of your examples to help with people with that yeah so whether it's sugar addiction or social media use or uh smoking or snapping back at your kids i mean um we've all faced this in our mm -hmm. lives um the I have a chapter on this, but I can't like squish the whole chapter into the answer. But the summary is, I mean, certainly if it's something like nutrition, get guidance from a professional like Dr. Lori about what should be on your game plan because there's right. so much misleading information. Oh so, because if you create a habit 
and then you're still eating like non-fat yogurt, you're not really, at least in my mind, you're not really helping yourself because you've not picked the right thing. So you need, in some domains, you need expert guidance, like here are the behaviors or here are the snacks or here's the foods that can be on your game plan. Um, So first know what the targets are. And then for the unhealthy eating, the first place to start is start by creating new habits. So let's say, and I had the habit of eating um, Fritos every time I drove home from Stanford, like a bag of Fritos. It was sort of like, it represented relaxation to Faulty me, Laurie. and crunchy, yeah. Um, I can see <laughs> the trend. Yeah, so Fritos. And um, so rather than saying no Fritos, in the first phase, just get re- just start creating habits of any type. You're, you're increasing your skill in creating habits. Just like if you were to play the piano, learn the piano, you don't start with super hard songs, start with really simple ones that you like. So create new habits, easy ones that you like. And often as you start eating foods more on your game plan, the Fritos and other things will fade away. They don't always, but often they just push out the other behaviors. Next, once you've increased your skill, you can use the tiny habits method to just outright stop some behaviors. For example, in my life, um, there was, well, years and years and years would go to a restaurant and they would bring nachos to the table or bread. I love that stuff. And it was like, do I just sit here and try not to eat it? And guess I would cave and eat it and then kind of be sorry about that and also ruin the meal. So in the tiny habits approach, one of the things to stop any behavior, reduce motivation, reduce ability, reduce the prompt. And so what I, my partner and I developed was as they brought bread or chips to the table, we would say, no bread, please. Or we're not eating chips today. So that's what, three seconds, mm-hmm. which meant that the ability to eat chips went way down because I wasn't going to go over to the neighbor's table and eat it off their table. And they weren't sitting on the table prompting me. So there are ways you can use tiny habits Mm -hmm. to take away motivation, ability, or prompt. Now, if that still doesn't solve the problem, there might be remaining ones. That's when you look at swapping. Mm -hmm. So many people will tell you to start with swapping. I'm saying, no, that's the last phase. Um, That's so then it's like, oh, that that's when the cauliflower came in. It's like Mm -hmm. the 3 PM. I really need a snack. And it wasn't like, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to eat something because I'm hungry. So it's like, right. well, instead of eating, you know, crackers or chips. And so then you would swap in the mm-hmm. cauliflower and you don't have to do that for all habits. There's some habits you can simply just stop. And some habits, when you start creating more positive habits, you're like, they just fade away because you become a different person mm-hmm. and it lo- no longer seems consistent with your new identity. And then for the habits that don't resolve in those two ways, then you look at what can I swap? What can I, what's, what's motivating for me to eat? Cauliflower with mustard. How do I make it easy to do? I prepare it in advance. I cut up the cauliflower. I make sure so it's ready to go. And then what's my prompt? Oh, after I feel hungry in the afternoon, I'll go get the cauliflower and mustard out of the fridge. And there you have it. And then I'm not eating chips or crackers. So what do you do for, let's say someone who it has a mindless kind of habit of, of course, I want to talk about eating because I talked a lot about that, you know, when they're bored or they're stressed yeah. and there's an emotional component to that, that they get some type of, you know, positive emotion, quote unquote reward or not. Yeah. How do you break, how do you diminish the reward response? Is there a way yeah. to do that that you found? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and with this, we can start getting into an area that some people might call addiction and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard, for, at least for me, because I'm not an addiction specialist to say, oh, this is where it was just a bad habit. Now it's become mm-hmm. this addiction. But I think there's different shades here. So let me talk about if it is a serious addiction, then I'm very clear in my book and in all my work, go get professional help mm-hmm. from an MD, uh, from somebody who's trained in that addiction and so on. A book is not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, take it very, very seriously. If it's just like sort of annoying that I mindlessly eat chips while I'm watching TV news and obsessing about all the problems, well, again, it comes back to, can you change your motivation? No, because you have some anxiety you're dealing with. So you're probably not going to tweak that. Can you change the ability? Yeah, you can make it that you don't have chips in the house. In our own home, we had to create a policy of no ice cream in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we would pull out the ice cream and think, oh, we're just going to eat a little bowl. No, we would eat the whole container. And so it's like, okay, let's get realistic. We got to make it hard to eat ice cream, which means you cannot bring ice cream to this house. If we were out and had ice cream, fine. Mm-hmm. And then if you can't make it hard or impossible, then you look at the prompt. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, maybe the whole sitting down to watch TV news is the thing that prompts me to start mm-hmm. snacking mindlessly. So guess what? Maybe I won't do TV news. I'll do something else. Mm. So you've got those three levers to pull and it's not always the same one for everything, but just know it's a system and you can systematically go, can I change motivation? Can I make it harder? Can I remove the prompt and figure out what works for you? And it's like creating habits. It's going to be a process of discovery and you won't mm. be perfect. So when you uh, cave and eat chips or whatever, move on with your life and don't beat yourself up and let it go mm-hmm. and just stick to your game plan next time as best you can. Mm-hmm. Have compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just call it whenever people fail, it's like, listen, this is data. It's just part of yeah. our journey. This is data yeah. that we're going to learn from and let's dissect it. And those are really conversations that you'll like to have. But I, I will say there's one thing that when I was taking the boot camp this summer, it really struck me what you describe as, you know, like all behavior has to have this motivation, ability, and prompt, or it will not happen. I mean, it really struck me. I was watching a documentary. I can't remember if it was on Amazon or Netflix, but it was about a researcher um, back in the 50s or 60s after World War II, where they brought in people. They were in, I think, in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And they were actually have them meet. There was a, they both they understood they were part of an experiment. But of course, the, there was one person who was the quote unquote victim who was part of the team that that person mm-hmm. didn't know about. So they were studying how far will someone go in hurting someone if an authority is telling oh, them to do it. The and Milgram so experiments, Milgram, yes. yeah, where they shocked people. Yes, yeah. and I watched that and I was sitting there and I we had just learned this whole concept with at the boot camp, and I'm watching that and I'm going, you know, so what is, so there's this behavior that's puzzling. Why would someone do something when they know it's hurting someone? They're not, you know, there's no one's gonna hold a gun to your head and say, do this, it's you or them. I mean, they're literally just saying, do it. So why is someone doing that? And it was really interesting as I just started thinking about what's the motivation, the ability to, yeah. to hurt someone was so easy and they had removed the physical, mm-hmm. you know, consequences of seeing someone hurting. And it just really brought it home to me. I was like, oh my goodness, this even, uh, you said every behavior. I'm like, this is even- All behaviors. 
all behavior, even that type of behavior, it just really drilled into me. I was like, okay, Lori, you have to pay attention to this is really, really crucial. And um, just to kind of give some people some to understand it really is any behavior anywhere, like you said, across cultural divides, everything. It's just, it's. Yeah, and and, (laughs) you know, um, and with that in mind, everybody, I invite you never to be bored again in your entire life. Because if you're sitting at the airport or just sitting outside watching birds, you can watch behavior and go, oh, what was the motivation for that behavior? Hmm. How was it made easy to do? And what was the prompt? And so you can, and I hate to confess this, but it's true for years, ever since the model, I just see the world in that way. (laughs) So any behavior you observe, there's some motivation for it. And they were able to do it and there was a prompt and you can just sit there and I'm training geckos right now. So I'm in living in Maui now uh, for the duration of the pandemic and stuff. And there's one day I just got this idea. It's like, oh, I'm going to train geckos to come eat out of my hand, wild geckos. (laughs) Okay. And it's working. And so, and then, (laughs) yeah, it is working. I mean, guess what? They like mango. The order is this. They like mango (laughs) then it's banana and then Surprisingly, they don't really like papaya and they hate limes and lemons. Okay, doesn't work. So, so, and so now I've kind of gotten to know the little gecko community and I can recognize them and I see them interact. By the way, they don't hang out together. They chase each other and whatever. So just even sitting there watching the geckos and inferring what was the motivation? What prompted that? It's not only interesting, it's incredibly calming. I don't know why. (laughs) I'm just saying, I invite you never to be bored again if you just start analyzing all the behavior around you in terms of motivation, ability, and prompt. There are two, two comments to that. <laughs> okay. I'll never look at a gecko the same. But um, number one is it reminds me of when you were, I don't know if you were ever a kid, but when I was a kid, I used to sit in the mall and watch people and go, yeah. we used to make up stories of people, yeah. but now I'm gonna now I'm gonna dissect their behavior. <laughs> And it could even be, what are they wearing? Why did they wear those shoes? Why did they take that purse? I mean, just- It's a whole other level. Yeah, so you can just- (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And it's good practice, because then it's practice. And then when you have it in real life, within your home or with a colleague or yourself, you've practiced. Oh my goodness, that is (laughs) phenomenal. And the other thing is, I've done the same thing with squirrels here. Oh, good. There we so, go. So we're not so different. <laughs> I have a video. Well, we've just moved in. We, we downsized. The kids are grown, you know, they're doing their thing. We're like, oh, freedom. So we moved to a smaller place. And I had over the summer, um, we live in the mountains and there's this, the squirrel came up on, I'm on a second story, was climbing, was sitting right up and looking at me at the light, like wow. right early. Yeah. And he literally put his little paws up there and was just looking at me. And I was like, I wonder if he'd eat something. So I did some yeah. research on what they'd like. And I set it out. And I found they didn't like blueberries. They liked pecans was their favorite nut of all the nuts. Didn't like walnuts. And it was just really fascinating. And then there were other <laughs> squirrels coming and chasing them off. And they, it's the exact same thing. That is, so until they started chewing at my furniture, then I had to stop. But oh. anyway. <laughs> well, you know, behaviors all around us. And wow. I, I don't often talk in these terms because it offends people. So warning, you might get offended. But think about how you get your dog to do stuff, right? Mm. There's a prompt, there's a command, that's the prompt. When they do it at the beginning, you reinforce them with a treat or a good boy or a click. If you're using click or training, the concepts are the same for humans. And the way people get offended, some people is like, oh, we're not animals. 
you know, we're yeah, better we than those creatures. Like, no, we are animals. We are very much so an animal. <laughs> and the way behaviors wire into us or get pushed out of us is the same, you know, exactly. essentially the same. Well, I think that's why dog trainers or anybody with animals, you can understand their behavior and their, why we want a dog to do something. Well, why would they want to do the behavior you want them to do it? And yeah. so, you know, like when you take your dog out to go to the bathroom, like I do our dog every morning, well, why does she want to go out besides go pee? It's, it's not to pee in the to pee. She wants to go out and walk around. So yeah. after we pee, we walk around, and that's her yeah, reward. That's, we that's, don't just go straight back in. <laughs> good. That's good. You, you know, that's it's it's like the kid throwing the you know the underwear on the floor into the hamper with basket. They make it, and right. they're like, yeah. So again, it's the emotion. It's the thing that reinforces the habit. Yes. It's all around you. Just just everybody just look and just observe. By being a careful observer, you can learn so much about behavior wow. and not just in abstract ways. It can be really right. practical. Right. I mean, and you could just do that as a parent watching your children, what they're doing. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just so much wealth of information here, <laughs> but I know we, I don't want to be, I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sorry. I went over a little bit, but everybody, uh, tiny habits, um, I'll put a link to it and everything. And Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Is there any final advice you would have for anyone besides buy your book because it's amazing? Um, I'll just, you know, it's the last piece of content in the book is probably the two things I want people to remember. These are the overriding one, help yourself do what you already want to do or help your kids do what they already want to do. So that and help yourself feel successful or help others feel successful. If you want lasting change, if you want habits to wire in and endure, those are the two things you do. So if you forget everything else, if you forget that Dr. Lori was training squirrels and I was training geckos and everything else, remember the two keys to lasting change are help people do what they already want to do, help people feel successful. Absolutely. And those are your two maxims, which I yes. think are really important to, to, for the foundation. And I tell my patients that all the time, like, listen, this is what we got to do. <laughs> but I just want to point out too, in the back, I'm a very systems dynamics oh, type of person thinker. And so you have all of this in like flow charts and stuff, and it just makes so much crystal clear sense. So guys, check it out. It's really awesome. And thank you again. It was thank amazing you. to speak to How you. Fun. I <laughs> so appreciate you. I had a blast. Thank you so much.